Christchurch, New Malden. 13th of October 2019, 9.30 service. Tim Davies speaking on food, drink and inequality. I have different approaches to eating and drinking. She'll happily have maybe one or two small sips of water with a meal, whereas I'm one of those people who will like happily down a couple of pints of water with a meal and still be thirsty. Um, why am I telling you that was? Because when I initially thought the title of this talk was actually uh, Food and Drink Inequality, uh, this inequality between the amount of water that I drink and my wife drinks is all I could really think about. Uh, and it's important, I think, you know, getting the balance right. Um, too much water with your meal and you'll end up bloated. Too little, you'll be dehydrated. I must admit, I didn't know why Stephen would have asked me to research good dietary practice for this talk, but hey, we're a progressive church. Uh, but no, the, the actual title of this talk isn't food and drink inequality, although it still has the same meaning. The actual title of this talk is food drink and inequality and instantly we're all feeling uneasy aren't we this is going to be one of those talks which makes me feel bad doesn't it he's already hit us with that sheep and goats reading from matthew 25 i'm not looking forward to what's coming next sorry but the uncomfortable truth is that we live in an unequal society we live in a world where the gap between the wealthiest and poorest is just getting wider and wider. We live in a world where too many people do not have enough to eat. And this has a significant impact on societies. We live in a world of inequality and the part played by food and drink is perhaps the most visible and measurable when it comes to seeing that. For many households, not just the least well off, the most flexible item in our budget is food expenditure. And families in a position of struggling to afford enough food are not concerned with the environmental or social implications associated with the food that they buy, but instead concentrate on just simply getting fed. It can even be less expensive these days to feed one's family on processed food rather than fresh food, eating food with higher salt, sugar and fat content. And as the cost of food is predicted to rise, it's, we can expect to see not just increases in numbers of people going hungry and relying on emergency food aid, but also in increases of dietary-related illnesses such as obesity, diabetes, malnutrition. These health implications in turn will continue to place greater pressure on an already struggling NHS. Food, drink and inequality is a problem that matters to and affects all of us. This past summer alone, there have been reports of the huge strain placed on food banks across the country and similar organizations, because many families are forced to turn to them in order to feed children who were no longer receiving a school meal for free during the day. And whilst food banks are an incredibly valuable resource for those most in need, you'll notice from that picture that pretty much all the donated goods are non-perishable foods, things that will last a long time. And yet, it means that those most in need of nourishment and a balanced diet are still not getting enough fresh food. And so from a Christian perspective, you know, all of this, it seems fairly obvious, doesn't it? This, this type of situation is something we should feel unhappy about. 
and feel called to take action against. But I looked into it a bit more on the Bible and said, you know, what, what does the Bible actually say about inequality? Is it really something we must be concerned about? Or is it actually just a way of life as has been created by God? Now we know from the very beginning in Genesis that God's created the equal value of all human beings. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them equally. God set our value based upon our likeness to him. Every human being has a naturally occurring equality with every other human being because no one has been created more or less like God than the other. And God loves each and every one of us equally. When he sent his son Jesus Christ to take the punishment for our sin, he died for everyone because we have all sinned and all equally deserved punishment. And we are all equally given the gift of salvation. In Paul's letters to the Colossians and Galatians, he makes clear that in Christ we are all equal. There is no difference between anyone in the eyes of God. But you know what? Stand us next door to each other, shoulder to shoulder, and of course we're not all the same, are we? Physically, intellectually, emotionally, economically, and by any comparison you can think of, human beings are all unequal. Short, tall, large, thin, athletic, artistic, rich, poor, evidence of human inequality is everywhere. And about this kind of inequality, actually, the Bible's a bit more silent, it would appear. God makes no apologies, creating us unique from one another. It could be argued that perhaps he's created some people superior than others in certain ways. You know, we consider not everyone has a singing or athletic talent compared to others. And when confronted by the stark contrast between the rich and healthy versus the poor and malnourished, perhaps the argument might seem to have merit there. Inequalities that negatively impact human experience can cause us to wonder why God doesn't do more to level the playing field of human life. When we look to the Bible and like the New Testament, we, we see it, discover, it discussing slaves and beggars without passing moral judgment on either. And yet instead, God put boundaries around some systems already in place and gave guidelines to people about how to behave. The Bible's treatment of slavery is often derided by people because its instruction is about kindness and respect between slaves and masters, not about abolishing the practice in its entirety. And beggars, you know, they were commonplace in Jesus' day. Yet he didn't start a make-poverty-history political campaign or crusade to redistribute the wealth. It seems that God is fully aware of the inequality in the society he created. And yet the Bible doesn't suggest he was planning any kind of divine intervention to redress the balance. However, what the Bible does tell us repeatedly is God's concern for the helpless and his instructions to us all to respond to this. Much of the inequality in our world is due to the effects of sin. Disease, racism, poverty, injury, even deformity are all too often due to the actions of humans. But 
God takes note of the suffering of others and he expects those with better circumstances to bear the burdens of those without. Throughout the Old and New Testament, there are instructions to care for the poor and sick, to welcome the foreigner, to practice fair economics. God's intervention is to show us the opportunities for us, his people, to develop empathy, compassion. Inequalities in physical abilities or financial resources are occasions for us all to practice loving our neighbours as ourselves. God often uses those very same inequalities to teach us and to develop in us the character of Christ and in those we serve. But you know, is it just about setting up food banks, giving to Oxfam and Christian Aid and things like that? You know, there were, there were three Bible passages I had in mind when I was thinking about this talk. Uh, I decided on the Matthew 25 one in the end as our main reading, but I want to briefly look at the other two that I'd considered. And the first one is from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. And he writes this, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge on Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Perhaps I might be taking it a bit out of context, but you know, it sounds like he's saying, bunch of good-for-nothing shirkers. You don't just give out food to people. They've got to earn it. I imagine verse 10 being the sort of thing that you know, Norman Tebbit in his 1980s prime might have been, had emblazoned across his wall at home. Um, you know, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Uh, and for those of you who don't know what I'm referring to, uh, get on your bike and Google it. Um, but is Paul really saying that inequality is the fault and the problem and responsibility of the one enduring it? Of course not. He's talking about those who are rebelliously refusing to work, not those who can't because of infirmity or even unemployment, and for those who find themselves spiralling in a struggle to make ends meet. And crucially, you see how he ends that passage. Brothers and sisters never tire of doing what is good. In another passage that other people might have chosen for this particular topic, uh, this time from Acts. The early church is described as pooling all their wealth and resources together, holding everything in common and giving to anyone who had need. Right from the beginnings of the Christian church, compassion for those in need, addressing inequality, is a key part of its identity and its activity. But is this what the church looks like today? Is there a problem? Perhaps, you know, we're so used to comfort 
that we don't realize how much excess we do actually enjoy. In thinking about this talk, I, um, I was reminded of a scene in the second Hunger Games film, Catching Fire. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with the series and the books, uh, the country of Panem, uh, formed the remains of North America after some apocalyptic event, is ruled by a small, wealthy minority in the capital who seek to main control, maintain control over the rest of the population in different districts, all providing different materials to the capital to live in luxury. And to deter any future rebellions from the districts, the capital hosts, it's called the Hunger Games each year, in which each district is required to submit one male and one female child tribute to fight in a gladiatorial-like games to the death. Uh, in brief, the story is pretty much a reflection on the haves and the have-nots by portraying in stark contrast the disparity between the wealthy few and impoverished many as they try to survive in a post-apocalyptic world. And in a scene in the second installment of the series, the victors of the previous Hunger Games attend this lavish party in the capital where guests consume vast amounts of food and then are offered this clear liquid to drink to make themselves throw up so they can continue eating, no longer limited by their stomachs becoming full. And the movie captures the scene really well with one of the victors, Peter, struggling with the fact that while many are starving in the world, the citizens of the capital are redefining gluttony. It's quite a shocking, stark scene. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that we as a people have got into the stage where we behave like this. But do we act with excess without actually realizing it? In the developed world, billions and billions of pounds worth of food is wasted, thrown away each year. You know, we don't deliberately drink a clear liquid so we can vomit and then continue to eat beyond our limits like the capital citizens of Panem. But how many times might we go to our fridges and push aside leftovers to have something a bit more appetizing or we're in a hurry so we quickly buy some convenient fast foods or instant meals and end up binning spoiled food that we've just not got around to eating. We need to act and care for those in need but Perhaps we also need to recognize that our own lifestyle might be contributing in some ways to the problem we are critiquing. Jesus' words call us not only to see the pain and the suffering around us, but to also challenge us to reflect on how we are connected to them too. When it comes to food and nutrition, we live in a world of extremes. The UN estimates that there's about 815 million people undernourished and over 155 million people under the age of five suffering from stunted growth. Asia, by far the, by far the most populous continent, is also home to most of the world's hungriest people. On the other hand, uh, obesity is what you might call a lifestyle disease has nearly tripled since the mid-1970s. The World Health Organization estimates that of the 1.9 billion adults who are overweight, 650 million are obese. 
a condition in which a person's weight is considered a danger to their health. But hunger and obesity are preventable. And this is something we should all be wanting to respond to. To give an example, in 2005, a Japanese gentleman called Masa Koguri, he left his well-paid consultancy job to start a non-profit organization called Table for Two. This organization partners with corporations such as Toyota and Panasonic, large Japanese industries, and hundreds of others across Japan to provide healthy meal options. And from each purchase of a meal within these organizations, 20 yen, about 15p, is contributed to Table for Two's school meal program, which operates in countries such as Tanzania, Rwanda, Myanmar, Total donations in 2017 amounted to about 1.75 million pounds. And the organization has served over 62 million school meals to those in need since its inception. It's expanded to similar organizations in the US and Germany. And whilst Table for Two doesn't have a, it doesn't exist in the UK in the same sort of scale, who could make it happen? Could we be agents for change? Can you take the same approach? You know, one thing that we do as a church, and that means you, as a member, have continued to and support, is the work of the Lunchbowl Network. The Lunchbowl Network, set up in 2006, was there to respond to the plight of orphaned, vulnerable children in Nairobi. It provides funding for a dinner program for about 450 orphans and vulnerable children and it provides two kindergartens and also a primary school for them to attend. The combining of a nutritious meal and education, something both the Lunchbowl Network and Table for Two do, is so valuable in seeking to reduce the gap of inequality in our world. And even here at Christchurch, our monthly lunch club, Grapevine, reaching out to those on the margins of society is seeking to do the same. And at the heart of its strategy is that we serve a good quality meal to our guests. Now, these are just some of the ways we can start to address the issues of food, drink, and inequality. Maybe you can be more vigilant in how you use food at home, not wasting, throwing away. And perhaps with the savings, be prepared to give more to food banks and the supermarkets. You know, a two-for-one offer doesn't mean two for one person. Why not give that second bowl of cereal to a food bank? Why should we do this? Because Jesus spells it out so clearly to us in that passage we had read earlier on. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, 
Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I'm not going to remind us of the second part of that reading because it should uncomfortably already be there with you. And to be honest, for me, what I find most upsetting about that passage are the words at the end. The least of these brothers and sisters. The fact that we're talking about the least of anyone should be enough to convict us of the problem of inequality in our world. We must act. God's concern for those affected by food and drink inequality is such that he aligns himself with those most in need. As I said earlier, God's intervention is to show us the opportunities for his people to love others as he loves them. To give us the opportunities and the sense of urgency for us to practice loving our neighbours as ourselves. Those we know, those we don't, those we find it hard to love. To be imitators of Christ and to keep his church growing firm in its foundations of ensuring that no one goes without.